Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by the imminent Dr. Peter Bregan, who is uh, notable in the area of psychiatry. He was trained at Harvard and taught there and at Johns Hopkins, author of over a dozen best-selling books and appeared on all the major media, Oprah, 60 Minutes, 2020, Larry King, you name it. He's been called the conscience of psychiatry and has really been a pivotal pioneering force in the in the mental health fields. And you may recognize him as being instrumental as a physician who first came out against lobotomy and psychosurgery and took a public stand about it when everyone else was, was really embracing it. So he, you know, because lobotomies took the brains of about 50,000 people and he had amazing efforts in that. And it said largely because such a catalyst that he was, it's been, we don't do that surgery anymore. So he's taken a new venture now, and, it, and I, I'm really interested in going deep and exploring with him, but he's really focused on the COVID-19 and the fear around that and, and some of the details on why it's happening. So we're going to dive deep on that, and I'm sure you're, like I am going to really enjoy this discussion. So welcome, and thank you for joining us today. I'm so glad to be with you. And thank you very much for covering our work so amazingly on your website. It's a courageous thing to do. And um, I think it's a great benefit. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. So my, the first question I have is the obvious one. I mean, you've got this incredible history in the mental health field, uh, pioneer in establishing massive changes in the field. And it really no expertise in immunology or infectious disease or any of those, but yet you've come out pretty hard and strong against what's going on now. And so before we go into details of what those specifics are, I'm wondering why and how you made the transition. I have some suspicions, but I'm curious to hear it from your perspective. Well, it certainly wasn't an intent of mine. Um, I began, uh, like my wife, Ginger, and we and everybody else, just being very worried about COVID-19, wondering, you know, what in the world's going on here? And I began to sense that uh, this man, Fauci, about whom I knew nothing, I hadn't followed him during his uh, disastrous manipulation of uh, all the issues, um, you know, uh, uh, around the so-called gay virus that he made it be way back in the 80s. Yeah, that's right. That was the... The early 80s. I remember those days well. Uh, yeah, when, when many of us thought that the HIV was going to be the decimation of the world. I mean, there was a lot of fear to that extent. And I, I actually didn't know about that. I mean, he just looked like this kindly gentleman until I started to listen to what he was saying and to look into what he was doing. Uh, and it began to look like uh, everything I knew about the pharmacology industry through psychiatry, but only worse, even Worst behavior than I saw Eli Lilly doing when it developed Prozac decades ago. <laughs> but we, we were afraid to get involved because 
I feel like my mandate has been that conscience of psychiatry role. Mm -hmm. And we were just, you know, not too eager to get involved. Then in, uh, in early April, Ginger brought this scientific article to me. And she said, honey, this looks like uh, it's impossible, like it's fake or something. And there was a 2015 article by a big team from North Carolina named- Yeah, Barrick, Barrick, Ralph Barrick. That's right. He, he's the final author on it and the power behind it. The initial author, the way it's set up is Minichary and, and others. Yeah. And um, this article is talking about making a coronavirus that's going to be uh, a new uh, epidemic. They're talking about it. They are, uh, they've actually accomplished it and it's a coronavirus. And in fact, it's a SARS coronavirus. It's a, a virus that will infect the lungs that, that, uh, that comes from the bats and is this uh, particular uh, shape of a coronavirus. And um, they're checking it out and they find that it will infect uh, human lung epithelium and they give it to uh, mice. And the older mice are getting very sick and ones that are compromised are dying. I mean, it sounds exactly, it's not, it doesn't turn out to be exactly right, but it's the precursor of uh, our uh, SARS-CoV-2. And I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, oh, and they even tried, by the way, to make a vaccine for it and they couldn't. And I'm thinking, my God, what's going on here? And then I look down the line of all these authors and there's some Chinese names there. Mm -hmm. So I check out those two and uh, they, uh, they, they list themselves as from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And then I look, who's funding it? Well, China's funding it and Fauci is funding it from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. I'm thinking to myself, my God, we're giving the Chinese a biomedical weapon. We're working with them. These two, and I look at what they did. They're working in their own labs. They're highly involved in all this. In fact, they would turn out to be two of the very, very top Chinese people in this what is essentially a military lab, the Wuhan Institute, nothing like that is anything but military in China. And so we had some connections that got pretty close to the Trump circle and we know some media and uh, we put out a, a video on this and a, a blog on it that quickly hit about 45,000. And here I am, it's practically the first thing I've ever done in the field. <laughs> and um, it hit 45,000 and three days later, Trump canceled the Chinese-US collaboration making pathogenic coronaviruses. He did not cancel the American efforts in that direction, which Fauci quickly took hold of. Now, more recently, we found out that Fauci in October has done a lot more new funding and some of that funding is going to get to China. I'm sure Trump is not particularly aware of this um, because uh, it's all very obscure. So Fauci has funded a whole bunch of new places to do what this, um, this very specific uh, area of how do you take a virus, particularly coronaviruses, particularly the ones that the Wuhan Institute works on because they have these bat caves in China and how do you make them more dangerous? It's called gain of function. What a euphemism, gain of, what function are they gaining? Ability to cause epidemics. 
So uh, I started tracking there and some of the money was being, that he's now giving out, uh, went to um, Echo Health Alliance, which is exactly the people who were funding the Chinese Wuhan Institute directly through Fauci. Not even just this other uh, series studies of being done out of North Carolina in collaboration with China. Fauci was actually funding the Wuhan Institute itself. And he was doing that through Echo Alliance, this international globalistic, we should at some point perhaps, or maybe, maybe another show on globalism. I'd love to hear your views mm -hmm. on it. I, I call it predatory globalism. So he, uh, in addition to giving uh, more money back to, to these people, he gave money to the University of Texas. There's a, in Galveston, there is uh, the level four uh, bio lab that can work with the most dangerous viruses. So I decided to, to look into this. I mean, there's no great magic to it. You have to use some search en engines like DuckDuckGo instead of <laughs> <laughs> But I started looking at it and I put in um, a China and, Wu and, uh, and the Galveston Institute and I get from, I think two years ago or so, uh, maybe three, uh, I get a press release titled the Galveston Institute and the Wuhan Institute. They're bragging about their relationships with the Wuhan Institute working on viruses. So no wonder he's sending them money. So I start digging deeper and I come across a, a letter from the uh, education department to the University of Texas saying you've not been forthcoming with us about all your connections to China and and the Communist Party, they specifically say the Chinese Communist Party from your university and in particular from your institute in Galveston. So I'm looking at this network of connections with China. They list them all. And we have a blog out about that too now. And I realize this Fauci, nothing's stopping him. Absolutely nothing is stopping him. He is going to carry on uh, his assault on the world. And Fauci knew that the Wuhan Institute was unsafe. And here's a little more backstory. In 2014, President Obama called a moratorium on any more gain of function research. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, unless you tell me why institutes, I want you to stop this now, even with the current, um, current funding. <clears throat> and when it comes time for renewal, I don't want to renew gain of function. Now, he did not say anything about China, communist China. I mean, I, as far as I can tell, Ginger and I in recent years are the ones to blow the whistle on the collaboration with China, which was there. Anybody else could have found it. Um, and so Fauci in 2014 was facing a moratorium from Obama because many scientists were concerned about this. There were leaks all over the place. Uh, your audience will now hear for the first time that there were actually two leaks from uh, China of coronaviruses that caused deaths in 2004. See, we had a, we had a 2003, 2004 initial coronavirus epidemic that came out of China. Again, the origins are unknown. I mean, let's guess. And then in 1994, at the, toward the end of that, the Chinese had apparently been working with the coronaviruses. Maybe this was just the one that, that caused the 
the uh, short-lived epidemic around the world. Uh, but they had two leads out of Beijing, out of their institute in Beijing. So the Chinese are uh, well known to, to not have very good uh, safety measures. I mean, why would they? They don't have the same concern about our, their people of the world. Well, it, you know, I don't want to disparage the Chinese. I'm even making the assumption that they're committed to doing a good job. Uh, it's really easy to have problems in a BSL facility, biosafety yeah. level, level four. And there's, a, there's not many in China. We have a lot in the U.S., though. And it's interesting, you know, many people are thinking that this gain-of-function biowarfare strategies just happened this century. Nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, we're writing a book on this. This biowarfare agent's uh, research has been going on at least since 1950. 1950. So yeah. this is nothing new. Right. I'm with you on that. It's absolutely true. And the U.S. has been very um, heavily involved in it. And uh, But uh, we seem so happy to share, which is qu uh, quite amazing. We, we literally made these viruses available to uh, <clears throat> other places, Switzerland and, and I think probably Australia, um, so that the, the possibility of a leak is, was just enormous. I mean, Fauci knew that. He absolutely knew that. Um, just picking up briefly on the story, and, and I think what you're saying is really, really important, that um, in order to get around Obama, mm -hmm. Fauci outsourced the um, uh, gain of function, <laughs> I can barely say those awful words, they're so twisted, the gain of function research directly to the Wuhan Institute. That may be how he first began to fund them directly. Um, so we we have a man here who represents what I would would call the uh, you know the global predators, globalist predation on on the world. Yeah. So and and he's certainly part of the process, and there are others, and like Bill Gates and and Gates. others who are really part of the process that's seeking to implement this globalist agenda, which I think in other terms can be classified as technocracy, the rule of the world by not politicians, but technocrats, by scientists, by technicians who believe they know better and can make changes for the greater good to protect us from the future. And one of the, and I, I want to discuss this because you wrote a brilliant essay on what's coming up. And as we're recording this, it's before Thanksgiving, which is of any holiday, any holiday, including Christmas, all of them put together, that probably the single most important one where people get together as families. Yes, absolutely. And so why don't you talk about what you wrote and the fear yeah. and the, it's, it's just so tragic what they're seeking to implement. Yeah. Well, a little bit of backstory, but it's also relevant. Uh, the, the way we became involved uh, on a really escalated scale as I was asked to be a medical legal expert in a lawsuit to uh, stop the, um, the, the, the never-ending emergency edict of the governor of Ohio. So I had to give a lot of evidence and reason why these shutdowns weren't working and all the harm they were doing. <clears throat> Excuse me. And in that process, and that's been completed, that's an ongoing uh, um, project right now, and it's also stirring up other projects around the, around the country. All this, by the way, is all up on my resource center on, on bregan.com. Ginger and I have a resource center on bregg.com for the coronavirus. 
among other resource centers we have there. So uh, Ginger uh, came in and said, honey, this is unbelievable. She, she just does great research. She, she just finds stuff. And um, she said, do you know that there's a, uh, a whole school of research within public health on how to scare people? No, didn't know that. I'm, we're pretty new in this. <laughs> and, and there it was. Um, and, um, and it's got this odd name again, uh, Fear Appeal. What an odd name, Fear Appeal, euphemism for scaring people to death. And that's how you will, quote, appeal to them. And it's a very long standing. And the particular article she was uh, looking at that we studied together made several points. It, 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 uh, it said, first, you have to not only create something that or have something that people are afraid of in order to get your public health measures uh, imposed, but you have to make it personal to them. You have to make them afraid personally. And then you have to give them something immediate to do to begin cooperating with the uh, plans that you have. And we have many examples of that, you know, with things to immediately do is don't leave the house or uh, wear a mask or stay six feet apart, uh, then start closing down businesses and so on. Don't let your kids go to school and on and on. And um, it would just laid out the processes we were seeing. And this was long before this particular epidemic. And that got me into looking more deeply at um, the whole question of public health. And public health, sad to say, is essentially a totalitarian um, model. It does not raise issues of uh, collateral damage. It doesn't raise issues of the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, liberty, the right to people to die with their boots on, the, the American tradition of uh, individuals in their own communities making decisions. It is no such concept. It starts with the assumption that what public health officials think is true and must be applied regardless of the context. Doesn't matter whether you're, and we see this with this globalism, doesn't matter whether you're, you're working in Africa or in um, communist China, North Vietnam or America. These are the principles. They are above politics, above everything. And it's quite astounding. Um, so that, that became to us uh, um, something that was perfectly usable by the most extreme totalitarianism. Now, these people, as you point out, are technocrats. But I, I think, Dr. McCullough, I think these people are really, um, they're, they're really the handmaidens to the wealth and the power of the world. Yeah, it's one and the same, same agenda. It's the same agenda. And, and it's Bill Gates. That's why you brought up Bill Gates. And that's really good. It's Bill Gates. It's not Fauci. Fauci is, uh, is any... Uh, well, he's on, his, he's on several of his boards. He's, he's funded by right. Gates. And, you know, and as a result of his control, uh, you know, he's able to direct the funding of the federal, U.S. federal government, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Yeah, Bill Gates someplace uh, recently, uh, and this is going into a book that we're just finishing up, um, yeah, Bill Gates has said, no, he doesn't talk to Trump much anymore. He talks to Fauci, <laughs> the, head, the head of NIH. 
um, who's run by Fauci in terms of all the infectious disease stuff. Um, so that's that, that's what I'm seeing at the top is is extraordinarily wealthy and powerful people and and, and organizations. So it's people and its entities. It's kind of a uh, I, I see it as a kind of a cooperative but competing group that uh, welcomed, welcomed communist China, which shows how little these people like Fauci and the World Bank and and uh, our governments in the Western world, how little they, uh, they even worry about anything except wealth and power. Once they invited communist China into this circle, you know, China became a big, big player among these uh, essentially uh, world predators. Yeah. And they just let each other be. And uh, until Trump came along, no, no major figure stood up and said, no, no, we're going to go back to... Uh, well you know, I'd, I'd like to take advantage of your wealth of expertise in psychiatry um, and focus back on this fear, which you mentioned earlier, which seems to be one of the most powerful motivating emotions for individuals. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of RFK Jr. And he's, he's fond of frequently qu quoting FDR, uh, who was obviously famous for saying, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Uh, and also mentions how there were people or politicians within the Hitler's uh, 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 not bureau, but community that understood that the single most powerful intervention they can use to control the population was fear. So <clears throat> I just would like to get your take on how they're using the fear now. And maybe you can integrate your, the story of your mother, who's still alive at 94 years old. And I guess she's staying with you now, which is good because if you got a mother that's 94, it means you're going to be around for a while. I'm so happy to hear that. So, but how they're using to control us on this time. And it, it, it is such a powerful strategy. They couldn't have picked one better. And I believe you know, they've got access to the most sophisticated technology in the world and all these AI deep learning models. And they know very well how powerful fear is and can be and how to use it. Yeah, let me go, uh, let me delve into psychology to begin with. Um, yeah. There's an area that I've been studying uh, for decades uh, about helplessness. There's a, a, an area called learned helplessness, but I think of it as much broader, just general psychological helplessness. When we're born, we are, we're fundamentally helpless. Um, all we can do to be taken care of is to express pain. We can cry, we, we, can, we can wiggle, we can look, look just totally suffering. Um, but we have no ability to take control of the environment other than by hopefully attracting our caregivers to cuddle us or look for a thorn in the side or whatever. Um, and that remains a, an aspect of humanity, of being an individual that never leaves us. All of us can at some point be made to feel helpless again. And when we feel helpless, we become like the infant and we just, uh, we, we just feel we have to be safe, basically. We, we, we look to, to other people, we look to drugs, we look to psychiatric drugs, alcohol, we, we look to, uh, to authoritarian religions, we look to, to leaders of all kinds. We essentially go back into being helpless again. 
And if you can create um, something that's even greater than fear, and I haven't, I haven't discussed this in the papers, but truly anxiety, if you can make it confusing. Fear knows an object. The object is the coronavirus. Anxiety uh, is a state of confusion in which we can't even think anymore. One of the characteristics of a panic attack or an anxiety attack is we lose the ability to think. We become helpless, confused. Uh, most of the people in my field of psychiatry who end up being so abused by my colleagues have simply gone to them in a state of helplessness and the colleague, my colleague takes over and drugs, electroshocks, and in the past lobotomized or locks up or just something like a diagnosis, tells you you're helpless, tells you have a biochemical imbalance, lies, makes you feel more helpless when in fact you're struggling with a human condition. And um, what, what they have done with the uh, use of fear is actually to stimulate huge amounts of anxiety, of confusion, of desperation, which makes people angry, frustrated, <clears throat> and willing to cave in if they can be saved from that condition. I think that's one of the reasons why Fauci changes his mind. He doesn't worry about it because that sows confusion. I think it's one of the reasons why the CDC will occasionally come up with something that doesn't make any sense. Now, some of it is just that these people don't know what they're doing other than sowing fear. They don't really have any, any good science. He's un, actually not a scientist. He's an he's a out-of-control authoritarian uh, politician. CDC is not a science-based bureaucracy. It's a deep state bureaucracy. Um, so they, by their very nature, but also by tactics, they sow a great deal of confusion. Excuse, that, that's a good point. I just want to take a slight tangent there because it's so important. It, it, I agree with you. It is not a sci primarily scientific organization, but it's viewed as such. And they're going to use organizations like the CDC. I mean, Biden's already said it. He's going to set up these committees, these scientific committees, that's going to give them the justification to implement these strategies. So they're using science as an excuse when in reality it's just a political game. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, and one of the things we've seen that is the worst I've ever seen it, <clears throat> excuse me again. <clears throat> just, just for the viewers, you're struggling with fall allergies, not, uh, <laughs> not, not any COVID. infection. I'm healthy as a horse. Yeah, it's great. I am, I'm very, very healthy. I'm 84, but I'm, I'm just really, really, really healthy. Um, and it's Ginger's not mother, not mine. So that gives her. Oh, okay. Sorry, it's your mother-in-law. There we go. Yes, yes, but I talk about her as being being my mother. We're very close. Okay. Um, and by the way, we are. Uh, uh, our ages are sixty-nine. Ginger, eighty-four. Me, ninety-four. Mom. None of us want the country shut down to save us. We believe, and we believe that most together older people in this country want the children back in school. We want people going to work. We want people celebrating uh, Thanksgivings. Let us stay away from the Thanksgiving. That's what we're doing. We're going to have our own little Thanksgiving here. But don't shut down the celebration in America in order to save the only truly vulnerable people, which are people as old as my wife and me and mom. Mm -hmm. The rates of, uh, of um, death from this disorder are approach zero in 19 year olds and younger. And they're minuscule until you get into your 50s. It is less dangerous 
to people under 55, quite a bit less dangerous than the flu. Mm-hmm. But once you get up into our age group, it gets increasingly dangerous. I mean, one statistic showed that the average age of a death from this uh, medication, from this uh, virus is 80. Mm-hmm. Which and, is about the, the length of life expectancy. <laughs> right, it's a good point. And, and also the CDC has now admitted that the people who are labeled death cases from this um, uh, from the virus have on average that is 96 94 percent of them have on vast majority on average have two and a half other that is two to three other causes well they would if they're that old so is the virus just pushing people over a month or is it doing nothing to these well that's an important point because about a qu- nearly a quarter million people have contracted the illness and died in the United States, at least by the conventional. Statistics. Yeah, I don't agree with that number. If no, you no. Know. So if it's 94%, that's like 15,000 people because all these others, I mean, you could die from a motorcycle accident and fe- test positive on a PCR test and be listed as a COVID death. I mean, that is, and that's perfectly legal, and there are many cases of that. That's right. Yeah. And they're also listing probable deaths along with confirmed deaths. The confirmed death is if you have your uh, test and the tests are, are junk too. I mean, it's such a web of lies and deceit. But um, if, um, if, if you're if you're a probable case, which means you're not confirmed by a test, you still get listed in that 250,000. So this folks, it is a web of fear. All this goes back to the important issue that you've raised, which is, um, it's all about scaring us, confusing us, making us helpless. And um, I, I recently uh, wrote a chapter, I may or may not put it in the book about my 85 years of looking at fear. Because mm-hmm. I was alive during World War II. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went down to the beach when I was uh, uh, four or five years old and, and would find remnants of uh, of our sailors' uh, life rafts, where they were sunk right off the water's edge. I was uh, right, right out in the uh, offshore in the Atlantic. I mean, we were afraid of blockbusters. We hid under, under, t- you know, under the tables and, and chairs and whatever we could find in school desks uh, for fear of, of blockbusters. And um, and so I, I've been through. I went through the. Um, uh, the horrors of the polio of my, my closest friend died of polio two days after I was wrestling with him. Um, I know fear. I know, I know epidemics from all these years. You know, we went through the Vietnam war. We went through nine, nine, as many people have now, of course, nine 11 and never until Fauci and the, uh, the non Trumpers never have I seen leaders say, be afraid. I couldn't believe it when they they found a comment made in private by Trump that he didn't want to re, he wanted to reassure and not scare the people that was his villainousness. That's what Roosevelt did. That's what every single person has done in great moments of crisis. They have said, "Let us not be afraid," because we all know that a country that is unafraid and is doing as much of its normal activity as possible is the strongest possible country country. And that's an actual public health principle, looking at the good public health people, that we function best when we are living a normal life, unafraid, and we have ideals and goals like American liberty and freedom uh, to strive for. 
So what is well, I, I agree. Can you just expand on that? And as a psychiatrist with all your decades of training, describe what happens where, when we're caught up and engaged in this emotion of fear. What well, happens to us biologically? Well, when we, when we are experiencing fear, and in particular, anxiety, uh, quite literally, it scrambles our brains. It is most astonishing. Uh, in my work, for example, somebody will come in for the first time and they will be really frightened. Uh, the coronavirus may be playing a role in it. I continue to see people, but I see them uh, you know, on FaceTime or whatever other uh, method we have. And um, they no longer believe they can control their minds. And I'll say, you can control your mind. In the next 10 minutes, you and I are going to have you calm and speaking rationally. No, no. How can I do that? Well, look, look, take a look at me. I look, uh, I look safe, don't I? <laughs> yeah, I look at your grandfather, all right? And I'll laugh and say, yeah, yeah, you don't have to be afraid of me. Grandfather, grandfathers are wonderful and they're harmless. Whatever tool you have, you use. And people can calm down in minutes. Minutes. It's so powerful. I mean, you can be under a piece of concrete with your leg broken and the, uh, the emergency man, uh, worker runs up to you and says, everything's okay. Hope is on the way. Uh, we're going to start rescuing you and you start feeling better. So anxiety overwhelms us. It makes us stupid. It makes us desperately want somebody to take over. But what we need is somebody who says you don't have anything to fear but the anxiety. It won't kill you. The anxiety will calm you down and everything's going to be fine. We'll start working on what's going on here and how to handle it, including the coronavirus to shut down. You haven't seen your kids and, you know, and you haven't seen your grandchildren and you haven't been to work. But, but you, can, you, you can handle this. You can get through this. You can even find somebody to contribute to and help them get through it. You don't have to be helpless. And we're getting the exact opposite message from Biden, from Fauci. You know, Biden said the first thing he's going to do when he's told that he's won the presidency is he's going to call uh, Fauci on the phone. I thought that was so telling, so telling. And and they're going to whip up more fear if they think they need it. On the other hand, they may think when they've won, they don't need it anymore. This may all go away, the fear mongering. But I don't think so, because the pharmaceutical industry and many and, and the very wealthy, you know, need this fear because they're making a fortune on this fear with the with the ginning up, getting all their drugs ready and and uh, and getting their uh Vaccines. vaccines ready. By, by the way, folks, I don't trust this 90% claim that was made today about vaccines. I've been in this business too long. The studies are too short to have any idea what these vaccines are going to do. Yeah, and you're referring, as we're recording this, it's, it's November 9th, Monday, November 9th, and uh, Pfizer just made a massive announcement about their success of their vaccine, which had unbelievable influence on the stock market. Oh, it's bizarre. Yeah. yeah. Well, We'll see. I hope, I really hope to God the vaccine works, but I would be cautious, folks. Yeah. I personally let somebody else take it first. I say that as a doctor. This is too short term. This is, I mean, they don't get it right. Usually, and the FDA used to say these things. I went to a conference with the FDA back in the 90s where they said, <clears throat> 
that it's not true that a drug is safe and effective and we, we know all the major dangers when it's released because uh, it's, the studies are too short. Well, the vaccine studies are too corrupt. Oh my God, they're so corrupt. Do you know, folks, you don't even have to have placebo control for a vaccine study? No, they, they use placebos. They use other vaccines. <laughs> they don't use placebos. They use controls of other vaccines. So in other words, you compare your poison to somebody else's poison. So if they're both causing encephalitis, it's approved. Yeah, it's safe because okay. they both do it. <laughs> they both do it. I mean, that's how crazy this world is. Well, you know, ha- more than half the population agrees with you, which is surprising. And, you know, yeah. I feel really... Hopeful, I guess, is the most serious. Or you've, the most- had a, you've had an effect on that, haven't you? Well, I hope I've contributed to it, but I mean, there, there are many others that they are smart enough to understand that they do not want to take this vaccine when it comes out. They're, they just realize it's just a potential disaster. So uh, I know mean, there'll be some people who are more than willing to grab onto it because they they uh, I mean, believe the fear and are looking for a solution, but it's it's not going to work for most people and probably is going to cause more harm than good. I, it would be my best, best guess. Well, yeah, the only way we would know about even the immediate harms is a short-term uh, clinical trials with real controls, and they're not going to oh, be doing those. You know, you know what's interesting about these vaccine trials? Even though they're going, they, there's the intent to follow up for two years, do you know how long they're going to follow up for side effects from the vaccine? Four weeks. That's it. After, okay. If anything happens after four weeks, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> Every single person could die from it, and they theoretically would not know. Right. Right. And there's so many things that can happen over a longer time than four weeks. Yeah. Um, so we're looking, you know, I, you know, maybe we should muse for a minute. I've never asked the time. I've never kind of thought of doing this. But we need to muse maybe with the public about what do we do about living in such a corrupt world? Yeah, great question. I mean, that was part of why Ginger and I decided that uh, we were going to take on whole new fields. We, we knew we had the expertise, the research expertise and the scientific expertise. And I've got, you know, so many published books and scientific articles so that uh, I don't think anybody can doubt I'm a researcher and a scientist. So uh, but it was partly because it was so mind-blowing to see the degree of corruption. And we felt that, um, that you know, I mean, I, I, I actually, I'm embarrassed to say maybe, but I actually imagine standing in front of God and explaining why I didn't do anything. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I didn't have an explanation other than, well, you know, it was a lot easier not to, Your Honor. <laughs> and that didn't fly very well. Um I think the best antidote to looking at all this corruption is, first of all, to know this world's always been a corrupt place. Mm-hmm. I mean, read the Bible. I mean, read the, the oldest literature. Uh, it's all about corrupt people, corrupt kings, corrupt, corrupt individuals. Uh, you know, it starts out with the story of corruption with uh, Adam and Eve and goes on to uh, one brother killing another in the first, first family story. <laughs> so there's a lot of reason to believe that the wisdom of the ages is that the world's a corrupt place. So we need to learn to keep our own free will intact and to love. We need reason and love, basically, folks. I, I want to I just say that. We, we can reason and we can love. And I do think that's what good people have done forever and respect the liberty of other people. If you think of it, my, those are my three key words in life, reason, love, and liberty. And we can do that with our family. We can do it with our animals. We can do it with our gardening. We can do it with... Uh, with people that we stay in touch with, um, 
or you, you know, you can do what I do, which is I pitched into writing about these issues to a degree that it is an enormous strain on myself. I, <laughs> Dr. McCall, I cannot believe how after only a few months, I'm so facile with all this stuff because <laughs> periodically I have a little bit of a breakdown about, oh, wait a minute, what am I doing? It's a whole new field. It's all this new stuff. Well, I have to. And it makes me feel like I'm not helpless. So you want to overcome your helplessness and do it with reason, do and it. Educate and support others. So that's a strategy, another strategy you can use. So you can investigate it yourself and learn, but then you can teach others because it, it's, yeah. the, we're only going to survive and survive well if we survive as a community. There's no question. You're just not going to be a lone ranger. I mean, you could, but it's, that's not a good strategy. Yeah. And there are a lot of people, you know, when I started criticizing psych drugs and Eli Lilly and the FDA, I was alone. I mean, that was 1994 uh, uh, that I really, really got it. I started in 1983, but I really got involved when I was made the, the expert for all the combined suits against Eli Lilly, the scientist for all the suits. And it was like me against the whole drug industry as the expert. Um, and uh, it isn't like that now. There's just a lot of people who've been working on these issues, like, like yourself, uh, way ahead of me. And there's just a lot of folks out there who, who are seeing through this corruption. And I think more than half the country sees through this corruption, literally more than half the country. And um, uh, there's hope and we just need to keep working on it. But you'll f you, uh, one of the ways out of helplessness is to contribute. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be uh, life-threatening. It doesn't have to be uh, what I'm doing or Dr. McCall is doing, but contribute. Find out, well, what have you been given? What are your God-given talents? Uh, what, what do you bring to the table uh, of humanity? And it may be that you take care of one other human being. It, it may be that you volunteer somewhere, but do not get caved in because that's what they want. And it's not good for you. And you're being caved in is not good for me. It's not good for anybody who meets you on the street and sees your cake. Um, so uh, we need to buckle up at this point and um, really see each of ourselves as a, an example of succeeding in the face of all this and to spread it however far and wide we can. Yeah, great, great advice. I'm wondering if you have any other practical recommendations. And one that comes to mind is this whole mask issue. You know, there's quite a bit of controversy on that. And I think there's a significant amount of scientific literature. Some would d deny it, but I believe that there, it's out there to exist. Masks don't work well. I mean, in some circumstances, there's appropriate, like in the surgical theater, but generally. So, you know, you, it seems to me a highly counterproductive strategy uh, because you need to live in community in your social structure that if, you, if you're going to go to the grocery store and they require to wear a mask, well, then wear the mask. If you're going to fly somewhere and they demand you wear a mask, well, then wear it. Don't complain. Don't give them a hard time. Just cooperate. I mean, if, if it's your choice and you choose not to in an environment where it's not required, then great. But, you know, at some point, it, you know, we live in a community and social culture. And we I think that's, in my view, just being respectful. And I wonder what your strategy and recommendation would be. Well, interestingly enough, the main sign shows that no big surprise, wearing a mask is bad for the wearer. Yeah, but in short time frame, it's not going to be that bad. You know, for not in a short time frame. Yeah. When I see people walking outdoors with a mask on, they're really, they're ruining what they're gaining from walking outdoors. Yeah. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, there are even studies showing 
that in the operating theater, masks do not contribute to the safety of the patient who's being operated on. Gloves do, washing up does. Um, but in general, your masks are, are helpful to prevent you from coughing on somebody. Um, just like, you know, put your arm, your arm over, uh, your elbow over your face. Um, now I'm not gonna come out and say, stop wearing masks. Um, the, the science is too confused, but it certainly is not a great benefit that it's made out to be. I definitely agree with wearing it where required, no reason to get yourself in trouble and also respect the complexity of the science. Um, but if you're outdoors with people, the outdoors is a far greater protection than wearing a mask, for example. And in China, they, they had, I think, a one maybe out of, out of millions of people who may have contracted the virus outdoors. It is very difficult to contract the virus outdoors. Um, and the closer the space you're in is, the more likely you are to get a heavier load, which will make you sick. So avoid, you know, really tight, close spaces. I mean, if you can on, uh, on Thanksgiving, eat outdoors, be outdoors, space yourself three feet anyway at the table and maybe have the old people, you know, I, I still think that I, I don't have a good scientific evidence for it, but um, I, I would say on the outer circle and keep yeah. six feet and um, be cautious with the older folks. Um, love them, love us from a little bit of, uh, of distance. Um, well, well, one of the, one of the reasons why out being outdoors is so useful and effective. I mean, you could speculate that it's a sun exposure in certain UV. Yeah, it is. But I think the primary one is ventilation because yeah. it just, the wind blows and you just can't get high enough concentration of the viral particles to make a difference. So if for some reason you're inside, you can simulate outdoors by opening up the windows and get a lot of good cross ventilation going, which would, which is good for other reasons because of persistent organic pollutants and other, um, uh, volatile chemicals that build up in your home. So that's not a bad idea anyway. So, so a simple strategy you can use to radically lower the risk. And, and yeah, even uh, keeping your shades up, you'll get enough ultraviolet light through your uh, clear glass windows to, to help uh, disinfect your rooms. Very yeah, yeah. straightforward strategies. Yeah. Unfortunately, the UVB doesn't come through, so you can't get vitamin D, but the UV, the UVA does come through. So, which is thank you for that. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, it's classic. Because uh, I've done a lot of research on this, and you have truck drivers who drive for a living, and you know, they're the side where they're usually their left arm is under the window, and they usually get skin cancers there because the UVB protecting them with vitamin D production doesn't come through, but the UVA that causes the cancer does. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you know. We, we weren't promised an easy life. There's, there's, there's no place that I know of that, uh, that there's a mammoth promise of, of an easy life. Life is difficult. Um, right now, I think the single most important thing is not the virus, is saving freedom in America. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Would you like to say more about that? I, I think that's a really yeah, nice- Definitely. Question. Yeah. Why, why don't you go into it? Because I think that really is the primary- purpose of this, what I believe to be an engineered epidemic, uh, to use this as an excuse, a justification to implement these strategies, which essentially is going to result in the progressive and gradual loss of our personal freedoms and liberty, which is the biggest, I perceive as the biggest threat. 
Yeah. You know, one of the things I, I want to say to the progressive folks who are many progressives, and I, I used to be a progressive, good chunk of my life, I was a very strong progressive. Um, most of you are idealists. Most of you would like to see the improvement of mankind. That is not what's going on in the world right now. You know, when these corporations give a little money to, uh, to some radical uh, organization that you may feel sympathetic with, uh, they, don't, they don't care. None of these people care. It is not about being a conservative. It is not about being a, cons a progressive or a Republican. We are dealing with international predators uh, that just as happy to work with Iran or North Korea or North Vietnam or China, they welcome China. They on, they're only interested in wealth and power. Um, they have no real deep commitment to progressivism or capitalism. And my friends in the conservative movement, you really need to get, get it straight. They haven't got the slightest interest in free enterprise. Bill Gates is not an, uh, a figure of free enterprise. You gotta get this straight. These people are not for liberty, this entire, powerful international movement that I'm calling predatory globalists are motivated by wealth and power. They have reached the pinnacles of power, which are always corrupting, always corrupting. Um, you know, Bill Gates has three people on his uh, board of trustees, himself, his wife, and uh, Warren Buffett the number two and number four most wealthy people in the world. This is power beyond imagination. They are not wedded to anything except power and wealth. And it's not just wealth, not just money. I mean, Genghis Khan wasn't after money probably, it was power, Alexander the Great, Hitler wasn't after wealth. It's, it's wealth and power and wealth is a way to it. And they're using the technocrats to do this. Um, so I have a question. Do you think that there is a possibility that they have a sincere belief that they're do there's some altruistic motivations that, uh, and I've been thinking of the um, movement towards eugenics and radically reducing the world population because their belief system is that the, we have a limited resources on this planet and it was never designed to support seven, eight, 10 billion people. And that if we get it down to under 1 billion, it's going to be best for the future generations. And they're using this as a justification for the implementation of these, some of these strategies. I have a joke about Hitler. I never tell jokes, but this one is so deep. Um, it's a story about Hitler's dead. He's down in hell and the world has gone to pot. So a group of great people go down to hell to ask Hitler if he will come back and save the world. And he looks at him, he says, yes, on one condition. And they say, well, Fuhrer, what's the condition? Uh, no more Mr. Nice Guy. <laughs> That's what I think about human motivation. Everybody thinks they're a nice guy. Everybody justifies. It is extraordinarily unusual to find a mass murderer, a tyrant, uh, even on the lower level, a child abuser, a wife beater, very unusual to find somebody who says, you know, I, uh, I really did wrong. What I did was evil, self-centered, awful. I deeply apologize. You only see that when somebody maybe has like a big Christian conversion or, or some other life-changing 
experience. Maybe they, they find love for the first time and realize, oh my God, what have I been doing? Uh, but um, so I'm not even interested in what their motives are. I mean, the, because I know their motives are wealth and power. Yeah. And that's what drives people when they get to those places and, and all the icing on it, that's between them and God. I, I, I can't even speak to it almost. But I do know that very, very few people think they're doing something bad when they do the worst. Well, you know, from, from that perspective, it would, to me, make it far easier to forgive them. And I believe forgiveness of everyone is what we're called to do, even the most extraordinary evildoers of the planet, uh, because it's such a powerful and freeing emotion. Uh, personally, it's good uh, for us. It may not do a lot for them, but it's very no, no. But it's going to do a heck of a lot for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, that's a po another powerful strategy. Is just you know, it's one of my highest rules to live by is just to continually seek to forgive everyone because I, <laughs> I just and I and I think when you understand that the people who are doing these actions truly sincerely believe that they're doing something for the right reason, although objectively it isn't, it's a lot makes it a lot easier to forgive them. I'm glad you added that to uh, to to the my own list of you know of the reason of reason love and and liberty. Uh, because it should be right there, gra um, forgiveness and gratitude. Yeah, oh, of it's course. It's impossible to be grateful and crazy at the same time. <laughs> hey, you know, I've, as long as we're telling jokes, I got a good one. This is so appropriate here. The, just, a, just think of like the leading scientist, not Fauci, but a respectable real scientist in infectious disease. And mm -hmm. the, the media channel asked the scientist, he says, well, listen, Doc, when do you think this epidemic is going to be over? And he said, thinks like for a bit. And he says, you know, I can't tell you. I'm not a politician. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. That goes with that. that goes with it. <laughs> So, because it, and it sort of capsulizes what we're all talking about is that it's not about the science, although the science is being used as a technocratic justification to implement these strategies that are going to jeopardize our personal freedoms and liberty. But thankfully, we've got leaders like you going out there giving us solid, rock solid advice on what we can do to get out of this fear and live a healthy, empowering life. Thank you. You know, I want to thank you for this interview. Um, it's really, uh, really good to be here with you and talking with you. Uh, it's inspiring to me. I hope it's, I know it's inspiring to your audience, to our audience at this moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I really, important things you're raising. Yeah, and I'm so grateful that you've pivoted you know, from your traditional things that you were doing and responded to it. I think like, like many of us said, I, I have no desire or need to be involved in this thing other than to recognize it's, it's an acute challenge to our society, our culture, and we need to address this and help our fellow human beings as best we can with information knowledge that the conventional mainstream media is not telling them. And in fact, they're part of the whole problem because they've been essentially captured and our tool of the, the technocrats to implement their strategy. So you've, you've got to go to these other channels, which are pro becoming progressively more censored. So hopefully they haven't taken you out yet. They certainly done their best to 
just you know decreased our reach but it doesn't matter you know we're, we're telling the truth and giving people information that can change their lives as you are so if people want to learn more about what you're doing and get the updates I'm, they go to bregan.com b-r-e-g-g-i-n yeah and please get the free uh frequent alerts because uh, when we have something really important we usually remember to put it into a frequent alert and send it out <clears throat> they probably come out on an average once a week sometimes more maybe we'll skip a week and i do have a uh, a radio tv show once a week um and the tv portion is just put up on youtube um and i have amazing guests on it and uh, i think it's going to be really uh really exciting uh, to just keep interviewing people. Dr. Mercola, I don't want to embarrass you, but I'd love to have you on my TV show. Yeah, sure. It'd be great. It sounds like fun. You have a lot of nervous breakdowns out there in the establishment. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll work it out. So yeah, it'd be good. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm just so happy that you're, you're doing this and providing such a resource and you're such a major been such a major player and con contributor to improving humanity. So thank you for all your work, especially in psychiatry and then extending and pivoting out and helping us with this COVID stuff. So thanks a lot. Yeah, well, it's been a blessing for me. Uh, count your blessings, be grateful. Um, I'm now definitely having a broader effect around COVID-19 than around psychiatry because I guess it's so much more critical. Yeah, yeah. we just got it. We just, you know, didn't like throw never, things away. Never guessed that. <laughs> who would have who would have guessed 2020 is an interesting year all right thanks again and we'll catch up soon thank you sir